Good morning, church. Great to see you all out here this morning. I love it. That's exactly what I was wanting to say, but just didn't have the guts. Uh, So, if you can, please uh, open up to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. The title of the sermon is Faithful and Effective Ministry, Part 1. And if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So starting in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4, the apostle writes this. He says, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Diocopolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan." This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for you giving us your word. We thank you for allowing us to gather together this morning to where we could open your word uh, openly, Lord, without fear of persecution, Lord, that we were able to sing loudly. Um, And so we just thank you for that. May we not take it for granted, Lord. We pray on this morning that as we open your word and as we look at what you have for us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word, that we would understand what it means and and what it calls us and compels us to do. I pray that you would remove me as as much as possible from this so that I don't mess it up, God, please. And uh, I also pray, Lord, that um, if anybody here doesn't know you, they'll come to know you and be saved. And for those who do know you, we will be more like our Lord Jesus because of your word, that it will not return void because we know it can't, Lord. And so we just pray all this. We pray that you get the glory and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Our culture is obsessed with cracking the secret code of success. So, for example, on my Facebook feed, just about every day I see these ads for fad diets, workout plans. They pop up each day, and they claim to crack the code, the secret code of success. They almost always tell me that I'm working too hard already, and that's why I have a gut. And so if I just do these three easier things, I'm going to be ripped and shredded like the Hollywood superstars. Yeah, right. You know, or they'll say the same thing with dieting. You could eat whatever you want. Just cut out these two things and add these five things and you'll be ripped, right? And so it's always a a secret code for success. 
I've even seen an app when it comes to language learning saying, follow our simple process, and in three weeks you'll be speaking another language. No, you won't. Okay? Point is, they, they, they try to sell you on this idea that they cracked the code to success, and if you follow it, then there you go. This one is, is definitely going to make Pastor Josh mad. I saw one up there recently where this guy was saying he could teach you to be an expert with guitar in just a month, and you don't need any music theory. And so, again, it's just not real. But people throw this stuff out there because we're always looking for the shortcut. We're always trying to crack the secret code. And ministry is no exception. There is no shortage of books on how to have a successful ministry. Multiple books come out each year telling you that they cracked the code for effective ministry. They'll say, do these five things or these ten things. And you'll triple the size of your congregation as if that's ultimately what it's about. And what is almost always lacking in these books is a serious look at what the Bible actually says about ministry. They might sprinkle some Bible verses on top, but these books do not present a biblical theology on ministry. Honestly, I'm going to just tell you up front, I don't think there is a secret success code to where if you follow it like an algorithm, you're going to get the results that you desire. I don't think the world works that way. But I do believe there is a faithfulness code. Maybe not a, a success code, but a faithfulness code. There are things that we could do, things that God tells us to do, where if we do them, at least we're being faithful. For example, the book of Acts describes for us what the faithful early church did. They were four things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, to prayers, and to the ordinances, or baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay? By being devoted to those four things, they were faithful. And yes, God multiplied them. Okay? He rewards those who are faithful, but it might look different. Maybe we don't multiply, but maybe our people are a lot more mature. The point is, God will honor faithfulness. So there's not a success code. There's a faithfulness code. And when it comes to our personal ministry, it's the same. There is a faithfulness code, and I think our text this morning gives us a big piece of that. So let me just tell you up front what the point is, like the universal timeless truth that you could extract from this, is that Jesus shows us what faithful and effective ministry looks like. In his own ministry, he shows us what right looks like, okay? He shows us what effective and faithful ministry looks like. So you might be asking, well, what does it look like? Matthew shows us what it looks like by answering three easy questions. Where, who, and what? Meaning, where is it happening? Who's he doing it with? And what's he doing? And if you answer those three questions right, you will have a faithful ministry, Okay, well, if you answer them right and then, and then do what that answer suggests, then yes, you will have a faithful ministry. So this morning, my plan is to get through the first two of these, the where and the who, and then next time I will do the most important, which is the what. Okay, there's just too much to cover in, in, in a single shot. So as we move on, we are entering now the main body of the book of Matthew. Back in the first sermon I did on Matthew, I mentioned that he divides Jesus' ministry into five big sections. Each section has two parts. First, he gives you a big block of teaching, and then Matthew shows us what Jesus does. So what he teaches, what he does, his words and his deeds. And that happens five times, five big sections, okay? And we're going to see that as we get further into Matthew. But before he brings us to those five sections, he starts the book with a magnificent introduction, which is what we've been in for the whole time up to this point. The introduction tells us who Jesus is and where Jesus was born. Who is he? He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Where was he raised? Nazareth. And Matthew's telling us why these things are so. 
because he is dead set on showing us that Jesus fulfills everything the prophets foretold. That's why he's the son of God, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. It was all foretold in scripture. He is fulfilling everything that has been written. And part of him fulfilling everything that's been written includes John the Baptist, showing up as a forerunner, as a herald who prepares the way for Jesus. Also part of him fulfilling scripture is Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of God, being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And all of that proves that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. So Matthew put all that neatly together in his introduction. Well, now the introduction is done. Now we know who Jesus is. It's time to see what he does. It's time to see what he teaches. Now, our text this morning is the beginning of that. Matthew's going to give us a quick summary. He's not going to get into the details yet. He's going to give us a quick summary and description of how Jesus does ministry. And that's why I said the point of the text is he shows us what faithful and effective ministry looks like. And he shows us this with those three questions being answered. So let's take a look at the first question. The first question deals with the where of ministry. Where is ministry supposed to be done? The answer in the right place. You may go home now. I mean, it's that simple. Where is it supposed to be done? In the right place. Now, of course, it'll take a little bit to unpack that, but yes, all faithful and effective ministry first needs to be done in the right place. It needs to be done in the place where God calls it to be done. And with Jesus, we see exactly that. Look at verse 12. It says this. It says, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, so right there, that tells us the where, Galilee. And the text in a a few minutes is going to tell us why Galilee is the right place. But first, I want us to picture what this verse just said. Jesus was in the southeastern part of Israel. That is where he got baptized. That's where he got tempted by Satan. And then this tells us he withdrew to Galilee. So hopefully my little squiggle drawing here makes sense, but pretty much... There you go. That's a 70-mile trip. That's pretty cool, wasn't it? Anyway, so that's, that's a 70-mile trip on foot. So he's going from the south all the way up to the north. Now, reading this, you might get the impression that Jesus did this right after his temptations in the wilderness. But the text doesn't say that. Look at it again. It tells you when he went north. It says Jesus moved, quote, when he heard that John had been arrested. Now, the Gospel of John lets us know that a lot of stuff happened between Jesus' baptism and the arrest of John. So I'm going to give us a summary of that because it's important to know. Jesus is going to spend some time doing ministry in the South. After his baptism in the South, he meets Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, and he calls them to follow him. He also calls James and John as well. They were likely there uh, too. And so Right when he calls them, he then leaves the south and goes very far up north again. Let's go back to that. All the way up to Cana, where, as you guys know, he does his first miracle, which is turning water to wine. This announced the beginning of his messianic ministry. As soon as he's done with that, he goes back down to the south, and he's going to make some waves in Jerusalem. He'll clean out the temple, which is going to make the authorities really mad. After that, he moves into an area where there's water, and he has his disciples start baptizing a lot of people, even more people than John the Baptist was baptizing. Well, around this time, as the baptizer's ministry was decreasing, 
he started calling out the ruler of the southeastern region of Israel, Herod Antipas, who was the son of the King Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. Okay, So Herod Antipas ruled a certain part of Israel, and John's going to call him out. Now, Matthew's going to give us a lot more details later. I'll just give you the fast version. Herod took his brother's wife unlawfully. Okay, This was a sin. It violated the commandments of God. John the Baptist, as a good prophet, calls him out. The tyrant has him arrested. Okay, And so that's why John got arrested. Now, John's gospel will tell us at the same time that happened, Pharisees from Jerusalem started to get interested in Jesus's ministry because he was drawing too many crowds in the south. And so they were wanting to check him out. And, and keep in mind, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, they did have the political power there, a lot of it, right? And so it wasn't the right time for Jesus to clash with them. He knows that clash is going to come later. So with the unwanted attention of the Southern Pharisees mixed with John getting arrested, John's gospel tells us that's when Jesus moves up to Galilee. And pretty much Matthew's telling us the same thing. When John got arrested, that's when Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And this word withdrawal is kind of interesting. It means a strategic withdrawal. Meaning he's doing this as a matter of strategy, as a matter of being more effective at ministry and accomplishing the mission the Father gave him. Jesus isn't scared. Nobody could arrest him before his time. But he knows, as a matter of strategy, this was the time. For the effectiveness of what he's been called to do, it was prudent for him to withdraw and move to the north. Now, as he makes that move, okay, as he makes that move, he's going to pass through Samaria. Because if you notice, Samaria is right between northern and southern um, Israel. So that's where the woman at the well scene happens. So as he's withdrawing to Galilee, he stops in Samaria, preaches to the woman at the well, preaches to her whole town, and then after that, he's going to go up into Galilee. And so my map show is now done. No more of that, right? But, but that kind of gives you the, the idea of his travels and how this all worked. Like all that's happening in that little phrase, when John got arrested, Jesus withdrew to Galilee, okay? Now, once he gets to Galilee, he, Matthew is making a mad dash to get us to the city of Capernaum. You see, Galilee itself is a pretty big region, about a 40-mile circle, and it's going to have a lot of cities, Matthew wants us to get to a particular city, Capernaum, and he's going to tell us why. But he first tells us that Jesus did not go to Capernaum first. If you look at verse 13, if you look at verse 13, he says this. It says, he left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. You see, we, we all know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. That's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth. And you would expect him to go back there. And he did. But then Matthew quickly tells us he leaves from there. Now, Matthew is skipping over a very significant event. But Luke records that event. He fills in that detail for us. If you were ever to have a chance, just go look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Jesus goes to Nazareth, goes to the synagogue on a Shabbat, opens up the scroll of Isaiah, reads from Isaiah, and says, this is now fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's announcing that he's the Messiah. That didn't go over well with the people who knew him since he was a little kid. And so they tried to kill him. And therefore, he, quote, left Nazareth. So yeah, Matthew leaves that piece out, but he is telling us he went to Nazareth first, he left Nazareth, and then he went to live in Capernaum by the sea. 
Now, you might be wondering, why is Matthew leaving out details like this? It's because he's trying to quickly get us to the place where Jesus does a huge amount of his ministry. The place matters. That's why he's moving so fast. It's as I said, ministry needs to be done in the right place. Matthew is intent on showing us that Galilee and Capernaum is the right place. So then that begs another question. Why is Matthew so determined on this point? Well, remember what I told you before about why Matthew wrote Matthew. Why did he write the gospel? He wrote it for two reasons. First, to convince Jews that Jesus really is the Messiah. Okay, It's meant to convince the Jewish people Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. But he also wrote it secondarily to strengthen the faith of the Jews that already did believe in Jesus. Now, how that relates to what I just asked is this. One of the big objections that was raised by the Jews is that the Messiah would not do his ministry in Galilee. And yet he's going to do the majority of his ministry in Galilee. Yet they're going to say, no, the Messiah would never do that. The true Messiah would be doing his ministry in Jerusalem. He would not be recruiting fishermen and tax collectors, but he would be recruiting Pharisees and scribes, those who are pure and have dedicated themselves to God and study his word. That's what the Messiah would do. And he would be in the south, not in the north. You see, the Jews in the south looked down on the Jews in the northern part in Galilee. See, in the South, there were less Gentiles. And so the Jews could be separatists. They can make up a lot of purity rules. They can enforce them, and they could feel like they're more godly because of it. But the Jews up north in Galilee were surrounded by Gentiles. The cities were often mixed. And so their proximity to the Gentiles even gave them a distinct accent, like their Hebrew wasn't as good as the South because it was tainted by those Gentiles by where you live. Okay, so that's how the Southerners looked at the Northerners. Okay, the Jews in the north, they were faithful. They still kept Torah and all that good stuff, okay? but they didn't follow as many of the purity rules that the southern Pharisees were putting out there. And they tolerated interaction with, with Gentiles. I mean, they were trade partners with them sometimes. So they had to deal with their neighbors. So they tolerated Gentiles a lot more. That was scandalous to the Jews in the south. Okay, And so by the time you fast forward a couple decades to when Matthew's writing this book, the Jewish mindset from the South was now the prevalent mindset almost everywhere. Like, why would the Messiah be working with these compromised Jews up in the North? Okay, Why would he do the majority of his ministry, all these signs and wonders, in a region of compromisers who are not as pure? Why? Well, Matthew's determined to answer that. Notice the end of verse 13 again. If you look at it, he tells us more about Capernaum or Capernaum. He tells us what it originally was called. He says, quote, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, these are some pretty important Old Testament terms. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the tribes of ancient Israel, and this was their land. This was their allotment in the promised land. Now, they were destroyed for their unfaithfulness. They were dragged into exile by the Assyrian Empire over 700 years before this time we're reading about. Now, before it came to that, before they were punished this way, just a little little history of Israel, right? Joshua brings them into the promised land, and they're supposed to conquer it. They're supposed to drive the Canaanites out because the Canaanites were some really, really evil pagan Gentiles. Drive them out. That way you're not tempted to follow their, their practices. 
Zebulun and Naphtali, among some of the other tribes, did not drive the Canaanites out. And so then they started adopting their practices. They started worshiping their gods. They started committing all their immoral acts. And so God sends prophets to warn them. They don't listen to the prophets. So then he brings a very ruthless empire, the Assyrians, to come in as a form of judgment and drag them into exile. That's what happened to Zebulun and Naphtali. And they were the first of the tribes to be exiled. If you go look it up, they were the first. Okay? And then the Assyrians bring other Gentiles and transport them and really just import them into this land. So now this land that was Israelite was primarily Gentile. So that's how it all went down in the past. Now it's 700 years later, and it's like it once was. Yes, a lot of Jews have now refilled that area. They're living in that land, but they're still in mixed company with Gentiles. Capernaum itself was a bustling city of 12,000 people. It was important enough because it was a trade center because you have, you have all these roads converging there. And so it was important enough to have tax collectors, important enough to have Roman centurions, which meaning there was, there was a Roman seat of government there. This was an important, uh, an important city, okay? So people from the south would look at Galilee and they would say this region right now is exactly like it was 700 years ago right before God punished them. So why would the Messiah be there? And you could see this attitude in John chapter 7, verse 52, when you have some Jews in the south say that no prophets ever come from Galilee. Go look it up. It's so bad. God's never called a prophet from there. The funny thing is he called Jonah from there. So he has called a prophet from Galilee. And then in chapter, John chapter 7, verse 41, they're adamant and they say the Messiah can't be from Galilee, right? They're determined. They're, they're convinced. And the reasons they're convinced of this is because of everything I just told you. They see it as a compromised place with Jews who are really just sellouts, okay? That can't be the where for the Messiah. And this is where Matthew is now going to show them you got it all wrong. This is exactly the place the Messiah is supposed to be. So he ended verse 13 by mentioning Zebulun and Naphtali so that he can now prove this point. So look at verse 14. He says this. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, did you catch that? Matthew is saying that this very fact that he's in Zebulun and Naphtali, that this fulfills what the Old Testament said. This fulfills what Isaiah wrote. And this is the sixth time Matthew says this was to fulfill, you know, his fulfillment formula that he does. And we've seen every time Matthew pulls in the Old Testament, he's spot on. He does it masterfully. And the same thing is clear right here. He is specifically quoting Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Hold on to that thought. I'll remind you again, but still hold on to it. Can't do all the work for you. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 is what he's quoting. In verse 15 of our text, that's when he's quoting the first part. Isaiah says this. He says, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so Matthew here is rendering his own translation of the Hebrew. It doesn't match quite the Hebrew, doesn't quite match the Greek. He's doing his own translating. It's still faithful translation. And with what he's saying, he's, he's trying to point something out to his Jewish objectors. He's calling God in the prophet called out this land, this very land, Zebulun and Naphtali, the one where the road is by the sea which either refers to the road that goes to the Mediterranean for trade or the fact that the Sea of Galilee is there. It could be either. And then Isaiah calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, okay? So in other words, in the days of Isaiah, 
Even back then, these two Israelite lands were mixed with Gentiles, so mixed that it would be called Galilee of the Gentiles even back then. So the prophet Isaiah mentions the area, calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. But I could picture an objector saying, yeah, but that doesn't prove that the Messiah is supposed to be there. Keep reading. The prophet continues, and Matthew continues. He says, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So think about that. Isaiah anticipated that the region would be filled with people living in darkness. What does living in darkness mean? It's a metaphor for sin. These people are living in sin, and yet it is the people, quote, who live in darkness that have seen a great light. That is what Isaiah is saying. It's not just that they've seen a great light. If you read on, he says the light has dawned on them. It's passive. They don't bring the light to them. The light just comes upon them. A light has dawned. Okay, they were in darkness and they did not bring light because of any righteousness in themselves because they were in darkness. And while they were in darkness, this sounds very similar, while we were yet sinners, right? While they were in darkness, a light dawned on them. On these people living in the land of the shadow of death, on them God sends a light. And just in case the Jewish objectors are slow to understand, the very next verses in Isaiah tell us who the light is. That's why I asked you to remember Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. What are the famous verses that come just four verses later? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Loved ones, we read about that every Christmas. We read that about Jesus every Christmas. He is the light. Okay, what's the light that dawns on the people? The son of David, who's going to rule the world. The Messiah is the light. And where does he go? Where does his light dawn? In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, in Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, those who say the Messiah would never do so much ministry in Galilee... They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know the scriptures. This is the very place he is supposed to do ministry. This is what scripture prophesies. Isaiah, when he first wrote this, was at first speaking of the judgment that came to that place. Zebulun, as I mentioned, and Naphtali were the first to go into exile because of the fact that they walked in darkness. But Isaiah is bringing up a future hope here, and he ties the Messiah to that same place. You see, you have to understand what the exile was. In the Old Testament, you had the kingdom of God with the sons of David ruling. And even in a split sense, a son of of David was still on the throne. The exile marked the end of that. The kingdom was dissolved. Once the exile was complete, no king ever sat on the throne again. So this ancient kingdom of Israel is dissolved. And where did it begin? The disillusion began in Galilee. Well, the Messiah is the one who brings to an end the exile because now we have a king. Isn't it fitting then that the Messiah will focus so heavily on the very spot where the exile began? This is what we should expect 
This is like God's poetic justice and amazingness in just how he puts the scripture together. Of course the Messiah is going to minister most where the exile first started. And Isaiah prophesies that. And so Matthew picks up on that and says, look, that's the point. That's Isaiah's point, and that's my point. So all that is Matthew proving that Jesus is doing ministry in the right place. At this time, it's supposed to be Galilee. And there are all these prophetic reasons for it, and it should make sense. The objectors object because they lack understanding. Uh, he wouldn't go where, where it's dark like this. Who needs a doctor? The healthier, the sick. The sick, right? Who needs light? <clears throat> those in darkness or those who already have light? I mean, it's, it's obvious this is where he should be. Those dwelling in darkness are those who need to see the light. The Pharisees wrongly taught that Messiah would come when the people are pure. God's word says the opposite. The Messiah will come at the right time for those in darkness. So at God's appointed time, those who are in darkness, who are sitting in it, will then see a great light. The reason why they missed this was self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will always blind people to the fact that God seeks and saves the lost. God rejoices over what? One sinner that repents rather than 99 people that don't think they need to repent, people that think they're righteous. Christ came for a lot of sinners of which we are those many sinners. And many of them then were in Galilee. So he ministered exactly where he was needed. He ministered in the right place. And so I pause for a moment and I ask, what about you? Are you ministering in the right place? Every Christian is called to minister. So are you ministering where God calls you to minister? Faithful and effective ministry happens in the right place. Now you might be saying, well, how am I supposed to know where the right place is? It's actually simpler than you, than you think, okay? It's, it's this, first, where's your, what local church are you in? I mean, 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear, we have all been given gifts by the Holy Spirit, if we're saved, to use for the local body. So you want to know, first and foremost, where the right place is? Right here, okay, right here, okay? And it's amazing to me how many Christians that I meet that are all about serving in every capacity but their church. They volunteer in parachurch organizations and school clubs and you name it, but they don't serve the local body that God gifted them to serve. So first and foremost, serve the church where you're at. But there's more. Second, serve in the neighborhood where you're at. Those neighbors of yours, they need the gospel. And you are their appointed missionary. You want to know why? Because what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. But pastor, my neighbors are heathens. Yes, I'm sure they are. But who needs the doctor? Who needs to see the great light? So love your neighbor as you love yourself. Get involved in their life. Tell them about Jesus again and again. Invite them to see how you live your, your life in obedience to Jesus. Include them in some of your get-togethers when you have people from the church over. Listen, today's a perfect day. A lot of people are going to be getting together for the Super Bowl. But if it's not over at 6, we still have a 6 o'clock service tonight. But anyhow, people are going to be getting together, having barbecues, stuff like that. Why not invite the unbelieving neighbor as you're inviting your church friends there? And then they could see how you guys rejoice together, how you, how you have fun together. Then invite them to church so that they could see how we worship God together. So they could see how we all come to a silence when the word of God is open. Because we want to hear what our king says. Through these things, they can hear the gospel again and again. So that's how you do ministry in the right place with your neighbor. Third, serve in the place where you work. 
God has placed you in the vicinity of these people for many hours each day. You are strategically located. Whether you like it or not, you are part of your co-worker's life. So take an interest in them. But pastor, what if they're vile sinners? I'm sure they are. Okay? But again, who needs to see the great light? Who did the Messiah come to seek and save? And for the love of God, get the log out of our own eye. He saved us while we were sinners. So don't we want him to do the same for others? Fourth, if you want to know more right places, consider the places that you regularly go that are your regular patterns. I go to a certain Starbucks frequently. Aaron and Salema could tell you that. My wife could tell you that. I'm blowing a lot of money there. But the workers know my face and they know my name. And some of the regular customers know my face and know my name. And I've got to have a lot of evangelistic conversations there. I've got to have a lot of interesting conversations, period. Same thing's true about my gym. I go to the same class you know, four mornings out of the week. Most of the people there know me. I know them. They know I'm a pastor. I bring up my faith a lot. Sometimes they'll ask me questions about it. Now, I haven't got a chance to do a full gospel presentation because the class is pretty packed, but I'm waiting for God to open that door. I've already got the passport with these people to where when the time comes, they're going to listen, okay, because there's that mutual respect. And so when God opens that door, I'm going to be ready. Why? Because I see even the gym as my place, the place that I'm supposed to do ministry. So think of the regular places you go. Think of your neighborhood. Think of your workplace and think of here. At a minimum, those are the right places that you're supposed to be doing ministry. My point is we all have these places that are obviously appointed for us. And so we need to take advantage of it. Don't overthink it. Don't wait for like a burning bush in your backyard to tell you, I'm waiting to be led. No, you're being led now because this is what the word says. It's just a matter of doing it, okay? We need to take advantage of the opportunities God gives us. If it's a regular place for you, then that is where you should minister the word of Jesus to people. I remember, and this is a a ding on us, but I remember like 11, 12 years ago, we would drive once a month to Claremont to evangelize. 50 miles to Claremont. Now, we had some pretty cool conversations, and I remember those times fondly, but Claremont is not our place, The high desert is our place. The reason why we drove to Claremont is because our influence at that time was from a parachurch organization that trains evangelists. But since it wasn't part of the local church, the mentality is just go find a good place to evangelize. And that's what we did, and we got good practice, but that wasn't our place. So we had to find a way to do it up here, which we do more, and we need to increase that even more. This is our Galilee. We just have to to keep that in mind. This is where we will make our gospel impact, just like Jesus did in Galilee. Now, when we think about how Jesus did ministry and the fact that he went to, uh, you know, um, you know, to the people who were in darkness, okay, he's not going where it's comfortable. People often want to go where it's comfortable. Many American, American Christians do the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Rather than going to those who live in darkness, they want to move away from such people. They want to move to a place where people are like us, and we can say they're better people. And again, we forgot what we were, right, before Jesus saved us. And all I'm going to say on this is that comfort can be an idol that is most destructive. And I think in our society, it is the one that has laid waste to much of the church's power. Jesus went where God had ordained him to go, even where the work was hard. I do pray that we all likewise would do faithful and effective ministry in the right place. Anyway, verse 17, getting back to it. 
It tells us in general what Jesus said when he arrived to the right place, Capernaum. It says this. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that's identical to what John the Baptist preached. And so I covered that in detail a few sermons ago. I'm not going to rehash it all here. I'll give you a quick summary. To repent means to turn away from your sins. If you're an unbeliever, it means to stop being an unbeliever. Turn away from the false things you worship and turn to God alone. Surrender yourself to Jesus Christ by believing on him. Give your life to him. That's what it means for you to repent. Now, if you're a believer, what it means to repent is to stop doing the sins that you're entangled in. We all still struggle. We all still have our battles, right? It means to put those sins off like an old dirty pair of clothes. It means to put on the righteous opposite like a new outfit. And it means to renew our minds by memorizing and meditating on the scriptures that deal with the sin we're trying to walk away from. That's how we repent. That's how we change. Now, whether we're talking about an unbeliever repenting or a believer repenting, in either case, it's going to involve the same three things. First, you got to agree with God. you got to change your mind. If God says this is a sin, it's a sin. I don't care what I think. I don't care what society says. What God says is true. I'm going to start agreeing with him today. And then once you start agreeing with him, the second part is you've got to start hating that sin. You've got to start realizing what it is. Sin is a slave master. It puts us in bondage. It promises joy, but only gives us the opposite. So don't be tricked by it anymore. See it for what it is and start hating it. Start loathing it. And then when you agree with God and you can't stand the sin, it's easy to then turn away and walk away from it. Now, of course, you do all three at the same time, but ultimately repentance requires that we walk away from it, okay? And so pretty much believers are to increasingly overcome the sins that stumble us by moving towards the good, and unbelievers are to leave behind their status as children of darkness and then submit to Jesus Christ and become children of light. That's what Jesus is calling on people to do when he says repent. Now, why must you repent? He says, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God. God rules, God reigns. The kingdom speaks of the time when God's Messiah would come and save his people, judge the nations, raise the dead, and bring forth the new heavens and the new earth. That is the kingdom of God, pretty much when God's will on heaven is done on earth, okay? Well, Jesus the Messiah already brought some of these realities. He's saving people. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom is here now, in part. He brings the rest at the second coming, and so we always say it's an already not yet. The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here, meaning some of it's here, some of it's coming. The point is, for everybody, especially unbelievers, is repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The time to be saved is now. This is when Jesus is saving people. When he returns, it's too late. He comes in judgment. So repent now. You are given a chance to repent today. Today you are hearing the gospel. You might not have tomorrow. John the Baptist said the axe is set at the root of the tree and it is ready to strike. So believe while you can. Repent while you can. Now as believers, we are called to preach that same message that the Lord did. We need to have the same urgency that the Lord did. We need to go out to the lost and call them and plead with them to repent because the kingdom's at hand. How do I know that? Because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, when Jesus sends out his disciples in in pairs, he tells them, say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Tell the people that. He told them to preach what he preaches. We're supposed to copy our Lord and imitate him. So as Jesus did, we must do. 
and we're to do it where he calls us to do it, okay, in the right place. So that's the first thing we looked at, the where. Now, related to that, however, is the question of who. We are not called to do this task by ourselves. We are not called to do it alone. We are to minister in the right place with the right who. And who's the right who? The right people. I know, simple, right? Who are you supposed to do this with? The right people. Let's continue to see that. Look at verse 18. He gives us a lot of insight as to who the right people are. Okay, he says this, verse 18. It says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Okay, so he's in the right place. We've seen Capernaum, Galilee. And while he's there, it says, as he's going along, as he's walking along, which is how we're supposed to be reaching out to people. Okay, and as that happened, he sees Peter and Andrew. Now, as I mentioned earlier, John's gospel let us know that Jesus already knew these guys. He had already called them earlier, and to some degree, they were already his disciples. But clearly, they were not all in at this point. They hadn't completely surrendered because they ended up back in Galilee fishing again. And even though Peter and Andrew were originally from Bethsaida, okay, which is about four miles from Capernaum, they eventually moved to Capernaum and set up a successful uh, fishing business that they ran in, in a partnership with a man named Zebedee and his two sons, James and John, who we'll be meeting them in a minute as well. Now, the reason I give this background again is because it's easy to assume that this is the first time Jesus ever met these guys. And then that makes this whole scenario seem really strange. And you'll see why in a minute if you don't know this other stuff. But first, I want you to notice that they were found doing what they were raised to do, okay? Fish. He didn't pull them out of a seminary. He didn't pull them out of a, a religious school. I'm going to get to that in a, in a few minutes. He just found them fishing. They were casting their net in the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, I wasn't going to mention this, but given that every commentary mentioned it, I'm going to tell you anyway, they described the nets. So the net was a big circle that had rope, rocks on the edge of it, attached to ropes, and you drop it to the bottom of the sea, and then you pull those ropes, and the rocks close together and traps the fish. I don't know what you're going to do with that, but every commentary felt it was important that you know exactly what these nets are like. So anyhow, as he's walking by, okay, as he's walking by, they're doing their normal nine to five. That's what they're doing. But then in verse 19, we read this. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And then what we read in verse 20 is what would make this seem strange. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So if you didn't know better, it would look like Jesus is a complete stranger. He calls them to leave everything and follow him. And then they do. Like, who would do that? That's crazy, right? But that's why I said we have to keep in mind what we know from John's gospel. They already knew Jesus. He already knew them. He already started the discipleship process with them a while ago. And it takes time. Okay? They already knew he could turn water into wine and do signs and wonders. And, and even here, he's going to do a sign and wonder. Matthew, again, is going real fast, but Luke slows down. And in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 and 11, okay, he records the same event. And even before this event, Jesus was in Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law of an illness. And then it's after that that this happens. So they know who he is. He knows who they are. Peter's having a bad day, been fishing all night, can't catch anything. Jesus then teaches the crowd from the shore and then asks Peter to set out further and cast the net again. And you all know how it goes. Peter objects. I've been fishing all night, but fine, I'll obey. And what does Jesus do? Gives him the biggest catch of his life to where his boat and James and Andrew's boat or James and John's boat almost sink. And then what does Peter do? 
He drops on his knees and says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, which has always perplexed me. After doing a miracle like that, why was Peter's first thought like, I'm a sinner, you got to go, I can't be around you, you know? Um, It makes me think, and again, speculation, maybe Peter was feeling the weight of leaving the ministry to go back to fishing. I don't know. I just know that he's heartbroken, and then Jesus says, no, no, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, of course, that's all the stuff we get from Luke. Why does Matthew leave out all this stuff? Remember, his purpose is to show that Jesus is the Messiah to his Jewish audience. What's important to Matthew right now is where Jesus was, who he was with, and what he's doing. He's giving us a really quick summary because he's dying to get us to the Sermon on the Mount, which is something that the other Gospels don't record for us. So he's dying to get us to the Sermon on the Mount. This is all just an introduction or lead up to that. He's pretty much only giving us a basic description of Jesus' ministry. Now, after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's going to slow down. And he's going to give us a lot of details. But here, it's fast. Where's he at? Capernaum. Who's he with? His disciples. What's he doing? All sorts of good stuff that we'll see next time, okay? So with that in mind, it makes sense that Matthew's moving as fast as he does. For him, it's good enough that you know this is where Jesus calls the four fishermen for the final time. At this point, they're now apostle material. I mean, they still have a long ways to go, but they're going to follow him and give up everything at this point. And so I think it's important for us to know all the stuff Matthew leaves out so that we don't jump to wrong conclusions that these guys followed a stranger without knowing anything about him. When you read verses 21 and 22, which we're going to do right now, it seems even more unreasonable because two guys are going to ditch their father. I mean, that would be strange if they didn't already know Jesus. Okay, look at verses 21 and 22. It says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, again, we're not supposed to, simply, to think they simply abandoned their father for a stranger. John and James were also disciples when Jesus was working in the south, and so they knew him just like Peter and Andrew, and they knew he was the Messiah. They already saw those signs. And you might think, man, their poor dad. I seriously doubt their dad would object to them leaving him to follow the Messiah. The Messiah is the guy they prayed about in every Shabbat service for that dad's whole life. And when that Messiah comes and says, I want your sons to follow me, is he going to say, no, they need to fish? No, no. So don't feel bad for his dad. This would be the the proudest moment for this dad, okay? So with all that being said, Jesus calls, they follow. Now, I'm not going to make this a big point, but I don't want to minimize their obedience. Even though they knew Jesus, this is still a big amount of obedience, okay? What they are showing is that we are literally to place Jesus above all else in life. Leaving their nets and their boats is telling us they left their careers to follow Jesus, That's how you make your money and feed yourself, right? They left that to follow Jesus. Leaving their father in in the boat is telling them they left their most significant relationship. It wasn't a marriage, okay? They're unmarried probably at this point because they're still with their father. But but the point is they're leaving their most significant relationship. And pretty much, so so family and career, if you think about it, are, are two biggest priorities usually. And Jesus is making it clear that if you are going to be his disciple, if you're going to follow him, He's saying, I got to take priority and precedence over even both of those. James and John understood that, and the rest of their lives will be a testimony to that. Now, not all of us are going to be called to leave careers, 
but some of us will. I was called to leave a 15-year career, comfortable career in public teaching. Okay, God called me to leave that to do this. But that's not gonna, he's not gonna do that to everybody. Okay, and not all of us are gonna be called to leave our fathers and mothers and our brothers and sisters. Some of us will be able to serve God still being in the midst of those people. But some of us may be called to a country far, far away for the gospel. And the point is, is to obey Christ's calling above all else. You don't say no to him because of those things. That's my point. If he's calling you to it, you go. He might keep you where you're at. He might send you. Point is, obey Christ's calling. But given that, uh, given that Matthew's emphasis, though, is more on what Jesus is doing rather than the obedience of the disciples, I want to go back to that. A few years ago, I preached a, a topical sermon from this text called, Is Jesus Your Rabbi? One of probably the more important sermons I preached. It's about discipleship and what it means. And so I use this text as a jumping off point to show you the cost of discipleship. The reason why I'm not rehashing that, because it sure would have been easy just to re-preach that one, most of you wouldn't have even known, you know. But Matthew's point actually isn't to focus on our discipleship. His, his point is Jesus is building a team, okay? And so that's, that's what I'm going to focus at, getting back to this idea that effective ministry depends also on who we do ministry with, that we're not supposed to do it alone. Jesus calls these young men to follow him on his mission to bring salvation to the world. And the way that Jesus does this is very interesting, I'm going to give us a little bit of background so it'll help us see this. Back in the first century Israel, every Jewish boy was enrolled in Torah school at age five. It was called Bait Sefer, which is the house of the book or the scroll. And there they would learn the books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would start learning to read it. They would start memorizing it. That would be from five years old to 10 years old. At 10 years old, they're done. They graduate by Eat Safir, and then most of them go and start working with their, their dad. They start learning their trade. Religious education was done for them. But for the top 20% of those 10-year-olds, they weren't told to go learn their dad's trade. They were invited to the next school, which was called Bait Midrash, which means the house of learning. Okay, And in that time, they would learn the rest of the Old Testament as well as the interpretations and debates among the famous rabbis and sages. Now, that schooling would last until you're about 17 years old. Very similar to our culture, right? It lasts till you're about 17 years old. And at that point, your life goal is to find a rabbi that would accept you as a disciple. Rabbis did not walk around telling people to follow them. Instead, it was a bunch of 17-year-olds seeking out a rabbi and then all competing with each other for his attention to try to say, look, I'm better than my classmates all in the hope that you would get chosen. Because if no rabbi chose you, then it's back to a secular trade for you. And now you're seven years behind all the kids who flunked out, okay? And so they really want to land a rabbi here. The rabbis were seen as too dignified to go out searching for disciples. They need to come to you. You don't come to them. You're the teacher, right? And so that's how it was. A bunch of 17-year-olds competing for a rabbi. And on top of that, not all rabbis are created equal. As a kid, you want to land a job with the famous rabbi, someone like Gamaliel, right? Gamaliel was one of the top four most famous rabbis in history up to that point. That tells you a lot about Paul being Gamaliel's disciple. It tells you how talented Paul was, okay? So you want to land somebody like Gamaliel. But if you can't land a famous rabbi, then you would settle for a lesser known rabbi. And then after he's done training you, you might go serve in a village somewhere. Listen, this is a lot like kids today. 
you know, finishing high school and then they're trying to get into Harvard and Yale. That's Gamaliel. But they don't make the cut. There's always Cal State San Bernardino, right? That's, that's kind of how it is. So we'll go to Rabbi, you know, Jesse or whatever, you know, over here, or Rabbi Shlomo, and, uh, and, and pretty much they'll, they'll, they'll settle for that. Well, when you consider Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the fact that they're already experienced fishermen tells you they weren't even accepted into high school. They didn't go to the Bayit Midrash. They've been fishing since they were 10. So Paul landed Harvard. Peter didn't even get into VVC, right? Okay? And those are the guys that Jesus is picking. These are the guys that Jesus chose. Notice, he chose them. He didn't wait for a bunch of 17-year-old prodigies to try to impress him. No, he walked along and found untrained people in the midst of their secular work, and he simply called them. Now, in that time, it was undignified. What respectable teacher or rabbi would ever do this? But here's the thing. This is biblical. This is how the prophets in the Old Testament chose their disciples. Most famously, Elijah. This text is a throwback, an allusion to Elijah, an illusion, or no, allusion to Elijah. English language, man. Okay, so famously, Elijah was walking along, and he sees a bald guy, I could relate, a bald guy plowing a field. He just walks up to this guy out of the blue and throws his cloak on him and says, follow me. I guess bald man's not plowing a field after this. He's going to become a prophet. That man's name was Elisha. I know they sound the same. You got Elijah and then Elisha. And so Elisha says, hey, cool, I'll follow you. Let me go say bye to my father first. And Elijah's like, sure, go say bye. And then when he's done doing that, Elisha becomes his disciple and becomes even greater than Elijah. Our text, though, it's kind of interesting. It's very similar. Elisha's doing his work. Elijah calls him, changes his life. Peter, these fellows are doing their work. Jesus walks by, calls them, changes their life. But he, they don't go back and say bye to their father. They don't ask, what's that meant to teach? Someone greater than Elijah's here. When Elijah calls you, you could still, you know, tie up your loose ends. When Messiah calls you, you drop what you're doing and you go. One greater than Elijah is here, okay? So they leave their father in his boat. I'm sure he was fine with it, right? And so this is how you do it. Jesus was doing it like the prophets. The religious leaders were the ones who had it wrong. They lost the heart of how God actually does things. And I do fear that many Christian leaders in our day have also forgotten They look for the dream team rather than the type of people Christ is going to look for. Jesus was showing them and he's showing us how it's supposed to be. You don't force talented people to fight over you. You seek out the lowly and you teach them how to do everything you do. That is discipleship. Furthermore, the prodigies often are old wineskins, meaning they're filled with the teachings of their teachers already. They're rigid. And when you try to bring them the new stuff, especially Jesus being the Messiah, they can't contain it. Whereas fishermen... They were new wineskins. They could be filled with the new stuff that Jesus was going to give them, and they will be able to hold it. Now, this isn't to say that God never picks A-team guys. I mean, look at Paul. But by and large, he's mainly going to pick the B-team and the C-team and then a couple A-team guys, right? And so Jesus is building his team here. This is what effective and faithful ministry does. And it shows that it's not supposed to be done in isolation. Even Messiah builds a team. And think about the variety of people that he calls. Fishermen, tax collectors, an assassin. Had to throw that one in there. And he's going to turn them all into something far better. Apostles. And once he pours the Holy Spirit on them after he trains them, they are going to turn the world upside down. 
They will turn the world upside down. Now, in the meantime, they need to follow him. Watch what he does. Watch carefully what he says, what he does, how he does it, because all good disciples one day are called to do the same as their teacher. Now, when you read all of that in light of what John's gospel shows us, namely that these guys had already been following him even before this, just not fully, it seems clear that Jesus has been investing in these guys all along. Okay, he's been investing in them, bringing them to Cana to see his first miracle, teaching them to baptize in the south, because they're going to be doing a lot more baptisms later, showing them what it's like to challenge the leadership when it's corrupt, when he cleansed out the temple. He's already been preparing them for this moment when he would then say, okay, now I'm calling you permanently. It's as if he's saying, okay, this is it. Now I'm calling you like Elijah called Elisha. You need to leave those boats behind. You will be catching people, not fish. You will be joining me in the Father's mission to bring salvation to the world. Now, Jesus provides that salvation with what only he could do. He will die for us, for our sins, and raise on the third day. We can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. But Jesus then uses us. We will be the guys. We will be the nets that he uses to then gather in the fish, the people from the rest of the world. That's how it is. He builds a team. He invites them, and he invites us into his mission. We're the net that he uses to catch the people with the work that he did, his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, the interesting thing is no Old Testament prophet, no king, no priest had a role as big as what was being prepared for the apostles. And even we get to share in that role because as Jesus, as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends them, and then we're sent as well, okay? So Jesus ministered, right place, He ministered with the right people. He invested in those people. He taught them. He discipled them. And he didn't choose only the mighty, but he also chose the unimpressive. And he still mostly does that. And if you want proof of that, just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. If you ever need an ego check, just read it. And if it's still not bringing you down, read it 10 more times. And then by the end, you're going to be like, oh, he chose me because I'm not special. Okay, there you go. Okay, That's how he operates, okay? So in light of that, in light of that, when you minister in the right place, make sure you minister with the right people. And if you're one who's a maker of disciples, don't just look for the dream team. Look for trustworthy people that could be filled with that new wine. God gets more glory when he does great things through the meek rather than the strong. He still chooses underdogs and he makes them into something special. That's what he's doing with all of us here. I think of my own life. He took me, the youngest and least impressive son of my parents. I mean, my oldest brother's a doctor, graduated from UCLA med school. I got nothing like that, right? So God takes me, makes me a pastor, right? And he's used a lot of people in my life to prepare me so that I could then pass on that stuff to prepare others, okay? And so what should be one of my goals as a pastor? Not just preaching, not just praying, not just counseling, but raising up more pastors. And so guess what? I have some interns that I get to invest in, and they're very diverse. We got a PhD student, an artist, a retiree, Thomas, a school teacher, and a nursing student. That's a very diverse group of people. But you 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 want to know what my goal is with them, is to invest in them, teach them what I know, so that they could do it, so that they could shepherd this church and possibly go plant other churches. That's what we see Jesus do. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what Pastor Josh consistently does with the youth group leaders or the youth ministry leaders. That's what all your pastors here do with all the people that are under us in our ministries. And listen, if you're leading a ministry, we got a lot of people here who lead ministries, then you should be doing the same. 
You should be duplicating yourself. That way, if the Lord calls you elsewhere, your ministry doesn't miss a beat. And if you're serving in a ministry, not leading one, but serving, then watch your leader. Learn from them. See what they do so that you could do what they do. That's what the who is all about. Building a team, being part of a team, serving on a team. Effective and faithful ministry has both this who and where aspect to it. And if you're not being intentional, thinking about the where and the who, then you're not going to have a faithful and effective ministry. Okay, If everybody in this church were all faithfully ministering in the place that God has us with the people that God called us to serve then we as a church, we will do mighty things for the Lord, and we will impact this community. Now, of course, there is one more component that is needed. There's a place, there's a people with whom we serve, which is the the where and the who, but there's the what. Okay, what do we do? What does faithful ministry look like? What do we do? We're going to look at that next time, because the right place with the right people does you no good if you're not doing the right things. Okay, so we got to also know what to do. Now, going back to the idea of this kind of being a faithfulness code for ministry, all three are necessary. So what that means, because this is a two-parter, is, I mean, if I did the third part, we'd be here another hour. Not going to do that to you, okay? So what it means is you have to remember what's being said this morning. You got to remember it. That way, when next time I bring the third part, we're able to fuse these all together because it, it comes down to where, who, and what. They have to be together. Okay? So where we minister matters, who we team up with matters. For Jesus, it mattered even more because he, was fulf- because he was fulfilling prophecy. And the fact that Jesus was in Capernaum fulfilling prophecy, it got me thinking. Okay? Because there's always, I'm always thinking like, how could, well, I'm not, let's just put it this way. The Jews in Matthew's day rejected the truth. Why? Because they had made-up opinions. Made-up opinions that the Messiah can't be ministering in Galilee. Yet the Word of God said that's exactly where he would do his ministry. That's why Jesus did so much work. The where mattered. And the where, God told us the where. But people didn't listen to what God said. They made up their own opinions. And so that's what got me thinking. How many people today reject God because he doesn't fit up into their made-up opinions? How often do we hear people say, I won't serve a God if he doesn't change his definition of love to match our definition that was just made up within the last 10 years? All of history has been one way. Last 10 years, we changed it, and that's the right side of history. And I can't follow a God that doesn't bow down to us and change his definition to match ours. Or maybe some people will say, I'll never follow a God that would condemn people to hell. Okay, Where are they getting this from? Who are they to say what God can and can't be like? Have you ever considered that you're being like the Jews who were saying the Messiah couldn't be from Galilee when that's exactly where he was supposed to be from? Have you ever considered that that you're just making stuff up? That these are just opinions and you're betting your eternity on stuff you made up? Have you ever thought about that? That's arbitrary. Have you ever stopped to think that, that hell maybe is a just sentencing of criminals? And therefore, those who end up there, they're there because they're guilty. Just like guilty people are supposed to end up in jail, right? The hell's the same thing, same concept. So then, have you ever asked yourself, okay, if that's what it is, am I guilty? Guilty of what? Well, sin, breaking God's commands. And then you ask, okay, I've lied, I've stolen, I've lusted, if you're being honest, right? I've been a rebel, I've gossiped. Wait a minute, I am guilty. I'm guilty. And then have you ever thought once you realize you're guilty that, like, who God is? He's not us. He's infinite. He's perfect. He's just. That means his justice, his perfection, his holiness, it's all infinite. 
It's infinite, and then that means his offendedness at those things we've done is far greater than our offendedness would be because his offendedness is infinite. When we dole out justice in our human courts, we can only do a finite degree of justice because we're finite. But when God doles out justice, haven't you considered that it has to be infinite since his nature and power is infinite? And the offense against him is infinite? My point is this. Rather than just make up opinions about God, Listen to what he has said. Listen to what he speaks. He does speak to us in his word, the Bible, and he makes it clear. He tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve eternal condemnation. But rather than condemn us all, what does he do? He would be just and right to condemn everyone because everyone has sinned. Okay, but he doesn't. He so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus. God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, became a man to live a perfect life, to do what we failed to do, and then to take the penalty of all of our sin on himself, though he never did anything wrong, and to be nailed to a cross and to drink the full cup of the Father's wrath to save us. That is love. He died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. How dare anybody say, I'd never follow a God who's just. You want a God who lets you get away with your sin. You want a God who does not believe in justice. Yet you want a society that will practice justice if somebody hurts you or robs you. It's backward. It's backward. We need a God of justice. Oh, but so thankful he is a God of mercy and love. His faithful love endures forever. And he sent Jesus to die for us so that in Jesus, God could be just, meaning my sin got punished on Jesus, but God could be the justifier. He could declare me forgiven and righteous through the work and life of Jesus. That is love. That is what God does. That's what God says. If you turn away from your sins and believe on Jesus, you'll be saved. It's that simple. So rather than make stuff up, just listen to what God says. Believe it. Obey it. Don't be like the fools 2,000 years ago that missed their own Messiah because they stopped listening to what God said about the Messiah and instead made up stuff. No, my call to you, if you don't know Jesus, is come to him today. Turn from your sins, come to him and believe. And for the rest of us, for we who do believe, call for us is be intentional in your ministry. Intentional where you minister, with who you minister, and next time, very importantly, how we minister, what we do. With that, I'm going to pray. Worship team's going to come up, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you're an unbeliever, listen, while I'm praying now, you could be praying to God and say, Lord, I'm turning from my sins. I'm walking away from it. I believe on you, Jesus. Surrender to him, and you'll be saved. And then come talk to us after, and we'll gladly walk you through it. With that, let's uh, go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even in showing us an authority vast description from Matthew, where Jesus did ministry, who he did ministry with, that at the same time you show us that he fulfills prophecy and he is who the Bible says he is, you also show us how we're supposed to minister. You teach us through him and we thank you. That way we're not left without a roadmap. We're not left without instructions. You show us how and we thank you for that. So Lord, may we be obedient. May we be those who do minister in the right place with the right people, and may we do the right things, which we will see next time. I pray, Lord, for anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, that those hearts of stone that you shatter and replace with hearts of flesh and bring them to you, save them on this day, and may you get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.